talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Let's give something a try that we rarely do. Instead of talking, let's listen! Here's Scott Thompson! Yeah, we're not sure where he is either. Is he in the closet? Is he in the washroom? I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that one was done. All right, it is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber on the board in the newsroom. Diane and Dave, uh, lots going on today as, um, man, you know, it, it seems that uh, here's one way to look at it. We haven't talked about COVID-19 for a while. And remember, it was like show after show after show. I used to tell you how many days it was, and now I, we don't even do that anymore. Instead, I can tell you it's day 30 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Oh, and then somewhere in between there, there was a, a convoy or an Ottawa protest of some sort. So, man, it just seems from one to the other. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, there is progress being made on some fronts and uh, lots of local politics to talk about uh, as well. But the big news, of course, in Brussels, the NATO summit uh, just wrapping up and uh, all of the NATO leaders together uh, trying to figure out a way out of this mess. Uh, more sanctions announced. You wonder what, and I guess it takes time for sanctions sanctions to get put into place but you just why you don't say you know what this is all the sanctions we can do and just but i guess it's a game of of cat and mouse back and forth so uh more of those uh announced and uh and all of the leaders speaking uh after uh the proceedings uh here's a clip from uh justin trudeau and his take on uh, what's going down in the meetings and such and uh and really the unification of nato the world has come together to impose unprecedented and punishing sanctions on Putin and his enablers. Today, Canada will be increasing pressure by sanctioning 160 members of the Russian Federation Council who facilitated and enabled this unjustified invasion, which brings the total of individuals connected to Putin who've been sanctioned by Canada to 964. So, uh, but again, um, uh, we know what plays back here, and we know uh, how great our Prime Minister is at, at giving a, a, a heartfelt speech, but again, constantly being pressured, uh, why Canada is 25th out of 30 countries in NATO when it comes to paying their fair share. Uh, and, and again, the Prime Minister talks a lot about what's coming up in the next budget and what's coming here, there. Um, but many uh, military experts say y- y- you got to be prepared for these things. You can't start spending money after the, uh, the crisis has already started. Here's what the Prime Minister had to say on being asked about NATO spending. We continue to have those discussions at home. We have a budgetary process underway right now. Uh, we have a NATO meeting, a further NATO meeting in uh, Spain uh, in the coming months. Uh, those are all things that are ongoing. 
Uh, and also, President Joe Biden, U.S. President Joe Biden announcing they're going to take in, uh, I believe it's 100,000 refugees, uh, Ukrainian refugees, uh, specifically those trying to reunite, uh, reunification with families and such. Uh, also, uh, more sanctions, more spending, similar to the prime minister. Uh, but again, spoke of uh, the, the symbolism of this meeting and the fact that NATO countries are, are united. Putin was banking on NATO being split. My early conversation with him in December and early January was clear to me he didn't think we could sustain this cohesion. NATO has never, never been more united than it is today. Putin is getting exactly the opposite what he intended to have as a consequence of going into Ukraine. There you have it, uh, President, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden, uh, after uh, the NATO summit in Brussels today with uh, more sh- uh, show of a sign of unity for all of uh, NATO members. And again, an, an underestimation, a great underestimation, it looks like, by uh, Vladimir Putin. All right, another jam-packed show coming up. Uh, dental care, uh, a dental plan, obviously part of the uh, merger between the NDP and the Liberals and one of their uh, planks of their platform moving forward uh, as uh they again um, uh, have united, I guess, in some sort of deal, and this is supposed to be the outcome. What does the Canadian Dental Association think about that? We'll get their feedback coming up. Also, former Uniform President Jerry Diaz uh, now allegedly engaged in uh, ethical breaches. We'll talk about that coming up and what it means to the brand. Also, we talked about this in the past, and um, I remember even prior to the uh, the pandemic when there were lots of demonstrations uh, going on uh, in various parts of the country or the province or uh, even in Hamilton and the safety of our local politicians. Uh, and, and it's amazing um, that, you know, once you step out of the limelight, and, and again, I'm the first one to, to, to shine a spotlight on politicians, but once they go home, uh, it should be their uh, peaceful haven as it is anyone else's. And many members of council have been harassed, uh, people uh, protesting outside uh, the mayor's home and such over the years. Where does this go? Uh, because we are uh, obviously in a very divisive society right now, and it seems that uh, what the old level of norm uh, or normal is, uh, is not the case anymore. And what do uh, we need to do to protect these people. And, and again, you have to remember, and whatever your feeling is towards whatever politician or whatever political stripe, if we don't uh, keep some sort of code, of code of ethics in place here, who the heck's going to want to run for politics? You know, where are all the great people going to come from that are, could be future leaders? So something we have to get a handle on, and there has to be a line drawn as to what is accepted and what is not accepted. Uh, we'll talk to Mayor Fred coming up, uh, coming up on that a little later on. Also, Michael Tobe's going to be joining us and talk about the merger. Also, Christian Leprec, and uh, as an interesting article in the Globe and Mail uh, today, talking about how there's sort of a reckoning, a come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, uh, when it comes to NATO and military, and the idea that... Uh, 
um, we can, you know, the, the world has become a much safer place. Uh, when the uh, when the wall came down, as uh, as Ronald Reagan said, uh, a lot put up their feet uh, until 9-11. And then the conversation changed. We're seeing this again uh, with an old enemy being Russia. It's all coming up on Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson. Obviously, with the announcement made the other day in regard to the liberals and the NDP uh, coming together, merging uh, to keep government in place uh, until about 2025, uh, with that comes... Uh, and again, these have been, you know, certainly bantered around and promised in past election campaigns. Uh, and that is dental coverage for uh, low-income Canadians, starting at uh, those under 12. And um, now, with the merger of these two parties on these certain issues, uh, this is now at the forefront. And, you know, my goodness, at first, Mark, how could you not think, well, this is a great idea. The more people getting uh, dental coverage that need it and can't afford it, only the better. Uh, but have we worked out all the details? And what can we learn from what used to be our much sought after, highly coveted healthcare system, which lots of cracks and weak links were shown uh, during a global pandemic? Uh, and the healthcare industry is screaming for help as well. So, how do we learn from one and the other and and move forward with all of this? Let's bring in Michelle Bro, head of advisory or sorry, advocacy and governance, Canadian Dental Association, and with us now, Michelle. Thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am glad to be here. So, your thoughts at uh, at first look at this uh, this new proposal and, and and what it means moving forward from a Canadian Dental Association perspective. Yeah. So, uh, at the Canadian Dental Association, uh, we believe that oral health is a vital part of overall health, uh, and that Canadians have a right to good oral health. Um, so, we've always supported. Uh, initiatives that improve access to dental care uh, that can increase the oral health of Canadians, uh, especially for those who need it most for vulnerable communities, whether that's seniors, children, uh, those with disabilities, uh, you know, low-income families. Um, that said, um, the single best way uh, from our perspective to quickly and efficiently uh, improve oral health, increase access to dental care uh, to the people who need it, uh, is to invest in and enhance the existing provincial and territorial dental programs that exist from coast to coast to coast. These programs, in many cases, have been around for years, if not decades, but they're significantly underfunded. They're almost exclusively financed by provincial and territorial governments, and the federal government hasn't really ever contributed uh, financially to, to the running of these programs, hence why they're, they're in, in many cases, underfunded. Um, so we were surprised by Tuesday morning's announcement um, the federal government was considering a, a new large-scale federal dental program, uh, and I think it's going to be important to make sure that any new initiatives that come out of this uh, don't disrupt access to dental care for the large majority of Canadians, about two-thirds uh, that already have dental coverage through things like employer-provided uh, plans. Um, and, and again, we, we do feel the best way to do this is through existing provincial programs rather, rather than a large-scale new federal program. Um, but, uh, you know, we have now had the opportunity, the CDA has had the opportunity to touch base with folks in the Minister of Health's office. It seems like it's still very, very early days yet, uh, and we're really looking forward to collaborating uh, closely with the Minister of uh, Health, his staff, his officials, uh, in terms of making sure that this has a, a positive impact and a, a big impact uh, for Canadians who need it. 
it seems there are, uh, from your perspective, as much challenges and similarities as the issues with the healthcare system. And again, a lot of this that we're talking about, whether it's pharma care, dental care, what have you, I mean, they were there long, we were chatting about those long before a global pandemic, the pandemic obviously exposing holes. So what can we learn from that? And as you said, um, you know, in some cases, the provincial systems that are already set up are better than this. They just need to be better funded, uh, which again goes to transfer payments. And, and you have to ask yourself, as and I don't mean to keep comparing apples to oranges here with, with health care and such, but we remember the day when the feds paid 50%, then slowly by slowly by slowly, uh, uh, it turns out that now they're paying less than 25%, and and the rest is, is on the shoulders of the provinces. What's to say this isn't going to happen uh, with the, this system? Is this the best way to go about doing this? I mean, I think those are all fair questions. And, and right now, we, we obviously, I think most most people who are following this issue have seen the details that ca- that were released uh, Tuesday morning. Um, that's uh, really where things stand now. I, again, uh, based on our uh, initial conversations with the, the Minister of Health's uh, staff, uh, it, it seems like this is, uh, uh, you know, a very initial stages, very early days yet. Um, I mean, the, the good news is, at least from a, a dental care perspective, the federal government isn't really contributing to these provincial programs to begin with. Um, that, that, you know, in, in part is, is, you know, a challenge in terms of them being underfunded. So hopefully this means uh, at least uh, in the, the, you know, next little bit in, in the, the timeline outlined by the government, uh, that this is uh, going to have a positive impact and, and really help uh, more people uh, get access to the, the dental care they need and, and be able to maintain uh, the, the oral health they need in order to, to live their lives. And unfortunately, uh, Michelle, this becomes politicized and, and it's, well, don't you want kids to have del- uh, dental care? And, and as you've just said, you don't need to be a member of the Canadian Dental Association to know that this is extremely important. So this debate really isn't about whether it's needed or not. I mean, I think we all agree on that. It's how do we do it and how do we do it efficiently and not make the same mistakes we've made in the past and perhaps incorporate what we already have. Exactly. And I think, you know, you look at provinces uh, across the country uh, that have various types of of existing uh, dental programs, whether it's for low income individuals, whether it's for children, some have more, uh, you know, generous programs on one side than others, um, you know, and and that allows provinces to really respond to the needs of their residents and their regions. Uh, you know, a province that's a little bit older might, uh, you know, need to prioritize seniors dental care a little bit. Uh, a province with more young families might need to pr- uh, prioritize children's dental care a little bit. Uh, and that's why our, our message uh, has long been and, and kind of continues to be to the, the federal government um, that the, the best way to actually get this uh, done so that it can have a, a, a positive impact and, and we can have the the likely new investments, likely new support uh, flowing quickly is to take advantage of the programs that the provinces already have set up uh, and, and help uh, make them sustainable and then help uh, enhance them uh, so that they continue to fill the, the gaps that exist in terms of access to care. Michelle Bro with us, Head of Advocacy and Governance for the Canadian Dental Association on the thought of uh, a new dental uh, a new dental care program for low-income Canadians uh, and specifically kids. Michelle, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks for having me. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Canada's large at pri- uh, largest private sector union uh, alleged uh, Wednesday that its former national president, Jerry Diaz, has accepted or accepted $50,000 from a supplier of COVID-19 rapid test kits he promoted to employers of union members, uh, several of whom uh, purchased those uh, uh, test kits. Uh, Uniform National Secretary Treasurer Lana Payne said at the press conference Wednesday that uh, he'd been charged with violating the Code of Ethics and the democratic practices of the union's constitution after a internal investigation. To talk about all of this, Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing fine, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, your thoughts on the severity of these allegations, of these charges, what does it mean? Well, good question. I, I feel a bit like I'm watching a soap opera here. Just to take you back, in January, uh, Jerry Diaz announced that he wasn't going to run for a fourth term as the president of the union. That term would expire in August of 2022. We sort of thought he would do that. He's done a very effective job for nearly nine years. And then in February, he announced that, well, for medical reasons, he was going to retire early, and that would leave a void. And so suddenly the union needed to accelerate their process of of, uh, replacing him. Then it was about three weeks ago that there was this allegation without any details around him breaching the ethics, the constitution of Unifor. And then yesterday we had two developments. One is the one you shared, that there's this allegation of him accepting a $50,000 payment from someone to promote COVID uh, self-test kits or rapid test kits to various employers. But then also yesterday, uh, Mr. Diaz released a statement that he was uh, going to seek uh, uh, an entry to a rehabilitation program for dependency on alcohol, painkillers, and sleeping pills. In essence, maybe suggesting that his last X number of months in office have been clouded due to these other chemicals in his system. I don't quite know where all this is going to go. For instance, we've not seen any legal charges say around the word bribery involved. This is a violation of a, a, uh, uh, a constitution of the union, but I'm not sure what the penalty would be for that. You don't put somebody in jail for violating the constitution. Probably this does mean that Jerry Diaz's time at the union is over, that he'll have no meaningful role going forward. But beyond that, I'm not sure what the consequences are for him. Uh, is there anything to suggest this could lead to a police investigation or there could be some sort of charge? You know, again, great question. Normally, we, we look at bribery when there's somebody in a position of trust. So uh, I'm the, uh, let's say I'm the financial person, the chief financial officer of a company. Somebody gives me money and then I agree to buy stuff from them. That would be against the law. Instead, it seems that he uh, took this money and then promoted the product to companies Companies chose to buy it. Now, you could argue because he was in a trusted position, they did it to keep a union happy, especially a union president happy. But again, he didn't really have a gun to their head. They could have chosen to go with anybody else to provide that rapid test kit. So I'm not sure if he's violated any laws. How would he? How did he get caught? How would he have got caught? And, well, and I understand it's another person in another position. Is that showing us this system has checks and balances and works? Well, I'm going to say yes, but here again is the funny part of the story. So he was given fifty thousand. This is the allegation, allegedly. And if he had just kept the fifty thousand, we might never know. This was not uh, turned in by the company who paid him the money. But for some reason, 
Mr. Diaz took a chunk of that money. It's been uh, alleged up to $25,000 of that 50,000 and went to another member of the union and made a payment to that person to say, here, here's something for you. And look, we're going to get these test kits. It's that person who, when Mr. Diaz gave him the 25,000, took the money, but then immediately went to higher officials and said, look, this is wrong. This is violating our constitution. And he blew the whistle on him. So there probably is not a check and balance had Jerry just pocketed the money. But the fact that he chose to give somebody else a chunk of the money, that's when uh, it went wrong. And somebody did the right thing by blowing the whistle on him. The key question now, Scott, I think for Unifor's reputation is where does this go from here? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have any reason to suspect that Unifor is a corrupt union or that it has a lot of corrupt people. This appears to be the action of just one person. Granted, he was the head of the union, but it appears to be just him, not a coordinated effort. So they're going to have to come down hard. And clearly the new person coming in is going to have to be extra squeaky clean. Uh, again, my next question was, what does this do for the brand? This obviously is a major union. It's an amalgamation of a few. And Jerry Diaz was a very prominent figure. I remember having him on the show when, uh, you know, the Ford and, and Trudeau government came together with the auto, uh, the auto plants for, and the upgrade for, for Oshawa. He said he wanted to be the first one to drive a truck off the plant. And I thought, my goodness, at least he's, he's made this happen, which is incredible. Uh, so very powerful guy. And, and a figurehead, what does this do for the brand? Well, again, just to take you back, Unifor itself is about nine years old. It was the amalgamation of the old United Auto Workers Union, and then there were some other unions that came together. None of them as high profile as that. Uh, uh, and, and part of what they did in creating Unifor was to also look at having people join the union who were not traditional union members. So I might even be a freelancer. I could join this union to get access to some of their benefits. He was a firebrand, absolutely, no doubt about it. Uh, and it was a force to be reckoned with, whether I'm a politician. I mean, he even went after Mr. Trump at one point over some of the things he said, as well as some of these major car companies. And he made things happen. He was uh, an action maker for sure. Yeah. I don't think this hurts the brand because this is not an allegation of corruption of Unifor in general, but it certainly hurts his personal brand. And that's, again, why I say for Unifor, Whoever follows in his footsteps, whoever that next president is, has to be very much squeaky clean. There can't be any allegations in their background or the whole idea of uniform gets tremendously tarnished. Uh, the great point on one person, not the whole brand, but could this be the tip of the iceberg since this is the person at the very top? Well, this is why I'm calling this a soap opera. You know, every month we had one sort of story in January, a different story in February. Now we've got an allegation in early March, we've got more now. It appears from what we're hearing that this is very much a contained thing. But Scott, to your point, I, I'm not an insider. Heaven forbid that two weeks from now, it turns out that there was a pattern of corruption that uh, Jerry Diaz, yes, he got 50,000, but this person got 10,000, that person got 25, and a whole group of other people were involved. Then yes, I think the damage is huge. So at this moment, I have no reason to suspect that. I think it is self-contained with the one person but uh, stay tuned this this soap opera may not be over marvin Ryder with us professor at a group school of business mcmaster university as always marvin thanks for the time be well i will thank you when there's an issue scott is all in on getting to the heart of it this is hamilton today with scott thompson on hamilton's news today's talk 900 chml
Uh, all right, uh, we've talked about this uh, issue in the past, and um, you know, obviously, we haven't heard about it a lot recently, uh, simply because we've been in the midst of a pandemic and protests and demonstrations have sort of well. <laughs> excluding Ottawa, of course, uh, have been pretty much uh, to a minimum. But we remember uh, even prior to COVID. uh, And, you know, Hamilton certainly uh, no different than any other city. It's got a city hall and lots of people want to uh, speak their mind, protest, as they're certainly entitled to do. Uh, But we've certainly seen over the years uh, not only this intensify on the steps of City Hall, but make its way uh, to, you know, the extent where councillors or uh, politicians or members of the city staff could be harassed or even uh, bothered at their home. Uh, We know that uh, politicians of all stripes in different levels have situations like this at one uh, in in some form or another or have had or known about it in the past. Mayor Fred Eisenberger is concerned about the security and safety of councillors in the city and has uh, brought this uh, forward and hopefully it will get some attention. And joining us now, uh, now, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, Mayor for the City of Hamilton. He is with us now. Mayor Fred, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, very well. Uh, thank you, Scott. And, uh, glad to be here. So talk about, we've talked about this uh, before, Mayor, and and I, I know that you've uh, personally been harassed, you know, at your home and such. When did this start to become a problem? When did you notice things were getting out of hand? Has it always been that way? No, in fact, uh, you know, Canada, Hamilton, Ontario, we've been blessed with, uh, you know, having, uh, you know, a you know, great degree of safety and uh, not a lot of, uh, you know, worry and consternation about elected officials to be roaming around our, our streets uh, and our, our communities safely. But, uh, you know, it, pre-pandemic, uh, you know, we, we certainly had a lot of, uh, you know, activity happening at City Hall and other locations as well. And uh, a lot of you know that a lot of that directed uh, you know with uh, you know personal threats, uh, you know harm uh, to individuals, and I'm, I'm not personalizing this to myself. I'm talking about others as well, senior staff, politicians, any any government institution, quite frankly, uh, and and you know a lot of the frontline uh, service uh, counter clerks that uh, have also experienced uh, you know a great deal of aggression and sometimes threats that uh you know are inappropriate and uh that's you know that's a that's a relatively new phenomenon i would say you know in all my time in politics and that's uh, 20 plus years uh, you, you know the last few years is really the first time that i've actually worried about my own security and security of my family and the security of you know folks uh working in our government corporate organization that uh you know are, are front facing with uh, the community large and individuals on a regular basis so uh, it's it's frequent enough now to uh, to cause us to take some action. So, what discussions need to be had? What because obviously this is far reaching. It's not just elected officials. No, exactly. And so, you know, you'll recall maybe about a year and a half ago, uh, there was a proposal put forward by our staff to secure the uh, city hall forecourt, and uh, some of those bollards are going to be put in place so that we can't have a vehicle vehicle crashing out in front of City Hall, especially when there's major events happening. So that started at that point in terms of uh, City Hall Plaza security. Uh, It's now broadened out to uh, internal security for people that are visiting inside City Hall or coming to protest or coming to council chambers and deciding to, uh, to either occupy or threaten people or cause mayhem or destruction and so the the next level of conversation is really about security in uh, the indoor spaces of our civic institutions whether it's 
City Hall here at uh, downtown or whether it's the uh, Stony Creek Service Center or the Flamborough Service Center or Dundas, all of them have front-facing staff. All of them have offices with uh, um, uh, members of council in them. And uh, there really needs to be some, uh, some uh, look at what the security measures ought to be. Uh, if something is to occur, where are there safe places to go and who responds and how is it responded to? It's kind of like fire drills. Uh, you know, we used mm. to have fire drills on a regular basis. What happens when, if, you know, the building's on fire? Well, now we're into what happens if someone occupies the building or has a weapon or is uh, being threatened by someone? What actions uh, uh, need to be taken to protect everyone in the building? And so that that's one element of it. Uh, the other element is, uh, you know, we're talking about personal security for members of council. And uh, you, you've mentioned, you know, on occasion, uh, you know, houses have been egged. Uh, I've had multiple visits in my home from people protesting in front of my home. Uh, and, you know, and, and some of them have, uh, you know, attempted to do some damage. And, you know, I've, I've not personally felt threatened, but it can be very threatening for, uh, for anyone that is an elected office. And we want to make sure that if they do run for elected office, they don't have to worry about their safety yeah. and security on an ongoing basis. So uh, there's a security audit, audit that can be done for any member of council that, that would like to have it done. There's an upset limit on that in terms of the cost. And if they're interested and in, on a voluntary basis, they can have that security audit done. And that then may include uh, additional security cameras at their home and other other measures they could take to uh, make sure that they're safe and secure in their own homes. Wow. You know, I'm just shaking my head that we're even having this discussion and because there is so many different elements to it, whether it's your own personal security at your home, whether it's security of staff and the actual infrastructure of City Hall itself. What about guidelines for protests? Because you don't want to be able to, you you know, City Hall is beautiful in that respect. It's laid out in such a way where, uh, you know, it's a city square. How do we keep a lid on this and and still obviously have free speech? And the same same as, as someone's house i mean can you come to someone's house and protest well there's nothing to stop you from doing that uh you know the the, the you know there's uh i mean it's it's beyond the pale in my humble opinion i think most people would agree yeah. that that's uh, that's over the line in terms of you know going down that route but uh you know public streets are public streets and people are entitled to uh, to gather at public streets and uh if they happen to gather in front of my house or wherever it might be uh you know i, I don't think there's a law against that unless they infringe on the property, do damage, yeah. uh, you know, or are looking to uh, upset access to, to this site, then obviously that becomes a, a security and policing matter. And uh, fortunately, uh, we, we've had to call the police on, on several occasions. Uh, but you know what, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's little that we can do to prevent that. What we can do, though, is to make sure that all the, all the measures are in place to make it uh, as safe and as secure as it needs to be, and that the appropriate response is ready to go should there need to be uh, you know, a higher level of escalating response. And you know what, I, I think it's the world we live in. We've, we've seen uh, recently uh, you know, the convoys. I recall not too long ago, uh, you know, the Lock Street mayhem that uh, yep. some anarchist folks decided to, to do a tear through Lock Street and you know, just about attack anything that was in sight property damage and threatening people. Uh, so, um, I mean, these things are occurring and uh, we need to have, uh, you know, measures in place to uh, to at least be able to respond and protect individuals from harm. Yeah, and exactly. Who, 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 uh, who wants to run if their life's in danger? And on that note, uh, re-election? <laughs> 
Place Notice how I kind of slipped that in there, Fred. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've never had it done that way before, but good one. Uh, look, I, you know, I, uh, I have a lot of passion for this city. Uh, I, I, I'm really proud of where we are coming out of the pandemic and uh, the developments that are happening downtown and the waterfront and across the city housing initiatives that are uh, that are in play that are so desperately needed uh you know all the work that's being done has been uh, very very positive and we're, we're in really good shape uh, having said that i haven't decided and uh you know the first uh, first date for signing up is in may and the end date is in august and sometime between may and august i'll make a decision and but i wouldn't bet against it uh i am uh, very passionate about this city and i'm very proud of where we are and we've got a great team uh, working through all of those very important issues that city need to work through. And yet, you know, especially coming out of this pandemic, Hamilton is in, in, in particularly good shape to uh, restore its economy and uh, start creating that employment again. So I'm uh, really proud of where we are and uh, I will make a decision between May and August and uh, you know, you'll be one of the first to know. All right. In other words, stay tuned. Mayor Fred Eisenberger with us, mayor for the city of Hamilton, uh, still undecided and uh, trying to keep us all secure, including those that work at City Hall. Uh, Good luck with all of this. Stay safe, uh, Mayor. Thank you very much, Scott. Much appreciated. I'm announcing that the Liberal Party has reached an agreement with the new Democratic Party to deliver results for Canadians now. This supply and confidence agreement starts today and will be in place until the end of this parliament in 2025. Michael, I thought well, I thought as soon as I heard this, I, I wonder how uh, Michael Tobe is reacting to this. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I've already spoken on it a few times, but you're absolutely right. It's nice to speak to you, Scott. Um, yeah, I mean, I was gobsmacked when I initially heard it, as I think many people were, and I was gobsmacked the next day as well. So basically went through Monday and Tuesday, but... After a few days, you just sort of get used to it and you just accept the fact that it's a very frustrating agreement that means that Canada's most left-leaning government, the Liberals, are going to be even more left-wing after it, basically by getting into bed with whatever you want to call it. It's not a coalition. That's fine. We accept the formality that if Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, and no NDP MP are going to be in the are sitting at the cabinet table, that's fine. It's not a formal coalition. But you can call what you want. You can call a pseudo coalition, a non-coalition coalition, coalition of the left. It doesn't really matter. The end result is that the Liberals and the NDP have come up with an agreement that will keep <clears throat> this parliament running until June 2025, at least the way it's been created. And they're going to work on a variety of things that they have, quote unquote, in common or policy ideas that they feel are key or that they can agree on, including a national dental care program, pharmacare, the environment, a fairer tax system, whatever that specifically means, and a variety of other things that they think that they can sort of keep together, keep the coalition together, and direct the country in a particular fashion that, quite frankly, if you just look at dental care alone, the national dental care plan, that's something that the NDP has proposed both in the 2019 and 2021 federal elections, as we know, didn't get them very far. It's an enormously costly program that the parliamentary budget officer said would cost billions, you know, billions between 2020 or 2019, 2020 then to about 2025, somewhere in the neighborhood of, I'm not sitting in front of it, but it was four, six, seven, about eight to $9 billion alone, just for that short period of time. And that's one program. 
A pharmacare, the pharmacare act, which the liberals do believe in, will cost an enormous amount. Anything they do for emissions or climate change will cost a lot of money. A fairer tax system, even though it's being targeted right now for businesses, you have to figure that individuals will get hooked on it because we're going to be paying all these various costs that the liberals and the NDP are not discussing in their agreement. It's just a messy thing, and it just keeps so, alive a minority government that shouldn't be still in place for that long a period of time. Yeah, you don't do this if you're strong. Um, you talked about yeah. the issues that keep them together, and, and you know, we're talking to Philomena Tassi later on in a recorded interview, and, and I was mentioning to her, uh, and she was saying on issues that they agree on, they're going to vote on, and that's how they're going to get through. But what about issues they don't agree on? For example, uh, the Prime Minister is in Brussels right now and, and you know, putting on the the good front, but he's getting hammered about your 25th out of 30 countries in NATO when it comes to military spending. He says it's coming, it's coming, but it's obviously needed now. Jagmeet Singh has said, I'm not into any more military spending. So it's great on the issues that they can come together on, but what drives them apart? What happens when the two of them uh, start to debate this? Well, it's a fair question, and that's why, generally speaking, although we've seen other parties arrange agreements to keep a minority government in power, it's never gone for as long as three years. Nothing like that has ever been designed. Things change. People's change. Uh, politics changes. Policy changes. And you've, you, you, know, you brought up a very good point as well. And I don't know how they would be able to do this. I mean, based on the agreement, which I'm not sitting in front of, you know, the NDP is, is agreed to not call a matter of non-confidence in Parliament, so it will allow the agreement to run. The Liberals have obviously said that they're going to allow it to run for its entire duration, which is three years. The fact is there are the little bits of wiggle room, which I guess could open the door to it, <clears throat> especially there is one part, and I'm just paraphrasing, that if the NDP actually ever did see something, let's take military spending as an example, where they felt that it should either be a matter of non-confidence or something that they can't necessarily support, they would have to inform the Liberal government beforehand, the two sides would have to meet, and whatever is decided is decided. But that's the risk with these things. It, you know, it's hard to believe that a three-year agreement of this sort could last in the doggy dog world of modern politics, but that's the intent. I just don't see how it can actually occur. All right. Obviously, we were talking about uh, the conservative uh, leadership race uh, going till September. Uh, even right. I said it was, wow, that's a long time. But now, in retrospect with this, it doesn't. How does this affect the conservative leadership race? Yeah, there are good points and bad points. It's a mixed bag. Um, the bad point, obviously, is that whoever gets the top role, be it Pierre Polyevra, who has an enormous lead right now, or Jean Charest or Patrick Brown or Leslie Lewis or whomever, um, they're going to be in a position of opposition unless this agreement suddenly falls apart for at least three years until in June 2025. Um, it obviously changes the strategy of any conservative leader or the new conservative leader. He or she is going to have to factor in the fact that they're going to have to work at a different level. It, it allows them to be more critical, obviously, of government policies or the liberal NDP agreement type policies. In the same sense, it's harder to obviously get yourself heard in the media. In a minority government it's at, or a minority parliament, it's much simpler for the, the lead opposition, the official opposition party, to actually be able to stand up, ask questions, and get media attention on the leader at that time for whatever the pulse, you know, whatever stance they take. 
At the same time, though, it also gives the Conservative Party three years to basically try to determine how to restructure themselves, how to refurbish the party, what policies they need to enforce, and whoever the new leader is, that person will have the opportunity over a course of a few years to work all the kinks out of the system and make it into a much more effective political machine and, more importantly, a political alternative to the Liberals. So there are some good points. There are some bad points. Hmm. It allows the Conservatives more time, which is obviously not a horrible thing. But in the same sense, when you have a minority government or, in the Liberals' case, the second straight minority government they've had since 2019, you know, that's two over three years, you're sort of hoping as a new leader that you have a chance to go to the polls, sell mm. your message and become the prime minister. It's going to be a longer period of time and that person is just going to obviously have to wait it out. So hopefully whoever becomes is not a transitional leader, but someone who wants to stay there, you know, entrench themselves, yep. put their footprint on the party and build it. Michael Tobe with us, columnist for Troy Media, Looney Politics, contributor to the National Post and Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and a fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute to talk about what has been going down in Brussels. He is with us now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am. Good afternoon, Scott. Always a pleasure. Uh, we uh, heard uh, and just played a clip from the Prime Minister uh, explaining uh, or trying to explain uh, Canada's lack of participation as far as military spending with uh, with NATO and such. Uh, obviously, he's been getting questioned uh, about that quite a bit, uh, has talked about uh, upcoming meetings in Spain and then mentioned something about the budget. Uh, is this going to fly? And does any of this really matter as long as he wins the discussion here at home? Is it about NATO and what happens on the world stage or is it just appeasing us here at home? Well, I think that's the key question, right? Because that's the game that governments have played for 20 years, that it's really about boutique electoral politics and how can they make sure they get into power or they can stay in power. And so that's created two problems. One, it's politicized defense. Where defense has become a football, of course. You'll remember 2015, where even this government made sure it politicized the defense issue and the defense file to try to, to its electoral benefit. And then governments that have really not invested in defense in any significant manner. To the contrary, you might say that uh, we're a long ways away from where defense should uh, or needs to be. And the Germans have realized that. It's ironic that we have a social democratic green government in Germany hmm. that in a matter of weeks can get done what the conservative coalition before it could not get done uh, on very challenging defense policy files. And yet in Canada, and, and this was partially about the Germans saying, look, that uh, the Germans were sort of falling into irrelevance because they couldn't really make a lot of meaningful contributions to NATO efforts. And this was a signal, not just about reinvestment, it was a signal to the Americans and to NATO allies that Germany matters and European security in the future of Europe is not going to be decided without Germany's voice at that table. And the problem is that Canada currently is a discretionary ally that's becoming irrelevant. The Europeans don't need us anymore because they are becoming increasingly autonomous and independent. I mean, they've become more autonomous as a defense actor in the last three weeks than they have in the previous 30 years. And the Americans have always been unilateral. They don't really need allies. They have the capacity to do it alone. So allies are nice to have. 
but you don't need them to uh, to assert uh, American interests. And so in that regard, Canada is at a very high risk here of being frozen out and no longer being taken seriously. And so why would people consider our interests or our priorities when we have nothing to contribute? And to the contrary, when allies come asking about defense, about energy security, about making good on sanctions, we have nothing to offer. Uh, you can read Christian's article on this in the Globe and Mail. Uh, Christian, is, so is what the Prime Minister is saying here, if Canadians want this, this is what we will get? Uh, or, or does it jive with their policy? Well, the problem is, of course, that you also need to have a vision as a Prime Minister for the future of the country. And that might start with by understanding that being able to defend the country, to defend the continent, and to defend our allies when you're part of NATO is a first and foremost priority for any government. Security, because the security then allows us to have the prosperity and the democracy that we all enjoy. And so what the Prime Minister is saying, that security is essentially discretionary. If Canadians want security, then they can get it. And if Canadians don't want to invest in security, well, that's okay as well. Well, the problem with that is, of course, that Canada has benefited so much. Canada is such a stable and prosperous country because we've been proactive, especially during the second half of the 20th century, because we saw the disaster of the first half of the 20th century, and we said, we don't want to live in that sort of world. So we became proactive and we partnered with the Americans, with European allies in building the international institutions that have provided us with the stability and the prosperity that we enjoy today. And now the prime minister is essentially asking, well, those institutions are sort of discretionary to Canadians and sort of if Canadians want them, that's fine. The problem with that is, of course, it denies us the ability to shape the future of the 21st century when democracy is under considerable duress, when we have authoritarianism on the rise, when we have regimes, adversarial regimes in Europe blatantly disregarding the international order that we built after the Second World War by disregarding sovereignty and just marching into other people's territory. If we think that's the sort of world that we could and should all live in as Canadians and we should tolerate, yeah, then I suppose we don't really need to invest in defense or security. So what do you say to those Christian that say, you know what, Christian, come on, we live next to the United States, we got Big Brother right here, there's nothing we can do anyway, even Melanie Jolie uh, says, you know, we're not a military superpower, we're just a convener, we got the U.S. here, what, what do we need all this money spent, Christian? Well, we want to be heard in the United States, because if you're not heard on the defense file, uh, in Washington, you're not going to be able to get other policy issues done. So if you think you want to negotiate things on trade, if you think you have other types of border issues and priorities with the United States, if we think we want to collaborate on the, with the United States when it comes to, for instance, building more North American integration, our voice is not going to be heard if we don't look like a serious partner and a serious ally on the international scene, because the Americans have interests to assert on the international scene. And I've joked in Washington that the Canadian Armed Forces is the Americans' favorite foreign policy tool because there's a lot of things the Americans can't do because, as we all know, they're not necessarily well-liked everywhere in the country. Canada in the past has been fairly well-liked. Well, the problem right now is we no longer have the capacity to do those sorts of things that are in both Canada's and the U.S. interests, but that the U.S. can't do. And so the Americans are saying, look, if you guys, you know, and, the, and it's all about the three C's capabilities, commitments, and cash. And Canada has long said, don't worry about the cash because we've got the capabilities and we make the commitments. 
And over the last five, six years, every time I go to Washington, people say, you know, can you stop your people to stop talking about capabilities and commitments? Because until you put cash on the table, it really doesn't matter because the capabilities you have are far, are very insignificant relative to what actually needs to be done in the world. And that's the problem that we have. We didn't play ahead. We're now in a international crisis with regards to what's happening in Ukraine. Our allies are coming and asking, telling Canada, we need you to do more but our cupboards are bare. We have nothing to offer. And so far, we've put no money on the table, at least like the Germans have to say, yeah, okay, currently we perhaps made some mistakes in the past in assessing the international security environment, but here's the down payment on the future and you can count on us. There's no message from the government that our allies can actually count on us. Christian Leprec with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University as well, and a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. And you can read his latest in the Globe and Mail. After decades of being timid, Canada can Canada's allies still take us seriously? Christian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Have a good afternoon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Tony is on the line, got some thoughts on uh, NATO and spending. What are your thoughts, Tony? Well, Scott, I'm pro-Canadian. And what I've heard about uh, a lot of things, uh, people saying Canada can't do this and Canada can't do that. Well, I remember when... The Avril Arrow uh, was hmm. uh, the first jet uh, jet plane that would break the sound barrier. It ended up in the United States. Uh, Actually, it ended up in Lake Ontario, but that's another story. Yeah, that's the plane, but the uh, the uh, engineering of it went to yeah. uh, Boeing in the United States. They built yes. they built the plane. Uh, troops that were in Afghanistan. They wouldn't go into some of the valleys unless the Canadian sharpshooters were sitting on on the on the uh, hills uh, protecting them in the in the lower areas. Uh, give Canadians a problem, we solve it, and then somebody else uh, gets the uh, uh, buys it up and, and takes it somewhere gets the else. Credit. Yeah, yeah. We've done salt salt polio vaccine was a Canadian product. Uh, Peanut butter was a Canadian product. Uh, all those Canadian products that were, were produced and made in Canada by Canadians, like we even have a water treatment plant that was designed in Burlington Street that you could put into a, a car, uh, a, a boat, uh, uh, cargo, uh, those tin things on the boats. Uh, and Container. Yeah. Uh, so, Tony, your point here is, uh, hey, it's Canada. We should be more self-sufficient. We should stand up and don't tell us what we can't do. Well, we, we do. Give us a problem and we'll solve yeah. it. Look what's I hear you. Even All right, Tony, i got to let you go because we got to bring on our next guest. In regard to today's NATO summit in Brussels, let's get an update. Uh, Oral Brown is with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Oral, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. We heard again uh, much of what we've heard in the past. Uh, here comes more sanctions. Uh, obviously, NATO, a strong uh, and the strongest united front, it's probably portrayed in a while. But is there anything else substantial to come out of this meeting in Brussels? Not as much, I suspect, uh, that uh, President Zelensky had hoped for. This is why he was pleading with uh, the NATO alliance. He said, just give me 1% uh, of the assets that you have so I can fight back. And uh, it was uh, four weeks ago that the invasion started. 
very few Western leaders would have expected that Ukraine would still be able to fight back. They have proven that the Russians are not 10 feet tall, that the Russian army is not that efficient. And so that resistance against uh, the overwhelming odds that they faced is remarkable, borders almost on the miraculous. But then we have the other picture. We have uh, the images, uh, indelible images of Mariupol, utterly devastated, hundreds of bodies, perhaps thousands, in the streets, uh, all over Ukraine, hospitals, schools, theaters, attacked. The civilian toll is horrific. Millions of uh, people have fled uh, Ukraine already, and perhaps as many as 10 million people, counting internal refugees, have lost their homes. So it is this kind of race of holding uh, out against the Russians militarily, but sustaining these terrible civilian losses that uh, ought to offend the conscience of the world. Uh, many, uh, obviously, t- hitting 40 weeks, uh, sorry, four weeks today, uh, 30 days. Mo- uh, many thought, including Putin, it wouldn't go to uh, four days. Uh, and at the beginning, it was, oh, my goodness, look at they're holding them off. Here we are four weeks in. We saw shots of a Russian ship that had been hit today by Ukraine forces. Can they Can they pull this off? Yes, there is that possibility because they have morale on their side. They're fighting for their homes. They're fighting for their country. Contrary to what Vladimir Putin claimed, that there is no real country called Ukraine. Ukraine. There's no real nationality uh, that is uh, Ukrainian. Uh, He was proven to be wrong. And if anything, uh, ironically and unintentionally, he has done... uh, uh, much to strengthen that uh, national identity. But armies uh, use up vast quantities of ammunition and equipment. They have to be replenished. The Ukrainians need to have the intelligence uh, provided, uh, real-time intelligence uh, by the West um, regarding Russian attacks, uh, they need to have the ability to take out grad rockets that the Russians are firing at civilian areas and artillery pieces to stop or diminish the kind of uh, civilian uh, losses. And the Russians need to continue to suffer casualties to the level where the military leaders and the security leaders, who, unlike the population, which is prevented from getting real news, know the facts, and they will either exercise sufficient pressure on Vladimir Putin that he has to come to the negotiating table and reach a real agreement, not just ask for terms of surrender, or at some point they may even try to remove Vladimir Putin. We mustn't forget that historically dictatorships look strong and stable until all of a sudden they are no longer strong or stable. Hmm. Oral Brown with us, Professor of International Relations and Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, four weeks in, and Ukraine still holding its own, or certainly uh, not giving up to Russia. Oral, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Speaking of the merger between the NDP and the Liberal government, or deal, or, or agreement, or whatever you want to call it, um, uh, what happens to all of the various committees which were 
uh, in the works under a minority government, whether it's uh, the Wee scandal, whether it's the committee looking into the use of the Emergencies Act, which was, of course, uh, had all of our attention before uh, the Ukrainian crisis and Russians, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So what happens to these committees, including the one on the Emergencies Act? Duff Conagher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's with us now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, hope you are as well. So what happens to these um, uh, these committee stuff? I guess they continue on, but isn't the chemistry a little bit different in a potential conflict of interest considering the new agreement we have? No, I don't think so, actually. And I think uh, the Globe editorial, for example, uh, was saying um, one way to neuter Parliament. And Parliament hasn't been neutered by this because of the committees. Um, the committees are still controlled by uh, the opposition parties. The Liberals are in a minority in every committee. And the NDP uh, Liberal deal makes no commitment from the NDP with regard to committees. So um, I expect that uh, the um, committees will become uh, very important centers for holding the government to account on uh, all sorts of um, issues uh, and, and, and scandals, uh, uh, unless the NDP decides to roll over and fail to support proposals by opposition MPs. And why have, would we assume have committees why would we assume examine. why would we why would we assume that they wouldn't roll over Duff if they've got an agreement with um, the government only to, to obviously not have a, a vote of non-confidence if the water gets yeah. too hot but, with the emergencies act for example um, you, you, I don't know how do you square that circle is it fair? I mean, I, with the Emergencies there, Act one, they didn't want a, a conservative involved because there was other uh, people uh, in the Conservative Party who were thought to have support the, con the the convoy. But yet here, there's not a conflict. I, I don't get that. Uh, the the committees, there's nothing nothing that happens at committee that's a confidence vote or confidence matter. And so the NDP has made no commitment to support the Liberals covering up dishonest, secretive, unethical, unrepresentative, and wasteful actions and decisions. And uh, if they do roll over, then Parliament truly is neutered. But I suspect part of the reason that the uh, NDP leader was comfortable signing this agreement was that uh, the NDP can still do everything it wants uh, with the other opposition parties to make the Liberals... Uh, look bad by exposing their wrongdoing through committees. Why would they um, want to make the Liberals look bad when they've entered into a deal with them? Well, they've entered into a deal on policy options, and um, that doesn't mean that they agree that the Liberals are ethical and transparent and honest uh, and making fully representative decisions and preventing waste. So if they're smart, um, because history shows that it's the ruling party that uh, really gets the reward from these kind of deals in a minority government, because generally voters give credit to any of the changes being made to the ruling party, uh, in this case, the liberals, because they introduce the changes. So it sounds like it's coming from them, even though the NDP mm -hmm. has more of a say. And they get less blame if the commitments are not fulfilled because uh, they can spin it as, well, we're 
this is not what you really wanted because the NDP forced some kind of compromise. So if the NDP are smart, they will not give up at all into looking into liberal wrongdoing when other and will support calls by and motions at committee to hold hearings on those things. And also um, very strongly question and push for things at committee that they may not push for in the entire House because they have the freedom to do that because there are no votes of confidence at, uh, in the government or against the government in committees. So House committees will become much more important in terms of government accountability. And uh, if the because NDP, there is this because there is this agreement, they're more accountable. No, no, they'll become more important in terms of government right, accountability right. because uh, and when a bill is going through the House and the leader controls what happens in the House in terms of questions asked of the ministers and or any policy or program, the budget going through the House, it's the leader who really controls that. But at committee, the MPs have more freedom from the leader. And um, and our, the media watch the committees as much as they watch Parliament when something is important before them, at least usually do. There's one issue right now. The MPs are rewriting and changing their own ethics code rules behind closed doors right now. And the media doesn't seem interested in that at all, even though it's the first time they've looked at these rules in five years. And they're the most important rules that MPs uh, face in terms of requiring them to deal with voters in an honest and ethical way and lobbyists as well. But generally, the media does cover committees when there's big issues. What do you and think is so going to happen with this, with this committee? MPs can use committees to, to hold the government to account and try and make the liberals look bad still. What do you think we're going to see out of the committee to, to study the Emergencies Act and its use? Uh, I think you'll see lots of questioning, most particularly of the uh, Ottawa police chief as to why he didn't prevent truckers from uh, driving right up to Parliament Hill and putting their air brakes on and blocking the road entirely. Again, I, well, I guess my point to you, Duff, is I can't see what benefit it is for the NDP to stand up and um, and publicly chastise the government for some reason and then uh, try to justify to the public that, you know, uh, but other than that, we've decided to climb into bed with them on these issues. And I know, I know the committees don't have a vote of confidence attached to them, but I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure well, the public's yeah, but going to... It, they're different issues, right? So they're saying mm -hmm. we are um, going to do deals with them on policy changes. Yeah. And then, but that is not the same issue as are the liberal... I understand that. I just, honest, I just don't see, I don't see how way. these could... I don't see how these cannot possibly overlap. I just don't well, see them being able the to keep them separate. And we got to run now, Duff, because I'm plumb out of time. We'll have you back yep. on this. Duff Conager, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Philomena, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to have you here. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks for the invite. So my, my first question is your thoughts and, and what's the thoughts of yours and your party about the merger between the Liberals and the NDP? Uh, what's it been like for you the last 24, 48 hours? Well, you know, I, I'm pleased with this, uh, with the agreement. Um, you know, for us to have the support of the NDP for supply and confidence votes is important because, uh, you know, it, it paves the way forward for us to be able to um, deliver to Canadians on the commitments that we made in our platform. And so for me, I'm, I'm very, uh, very happy about that. Did you know it was coming? No, this was kept pretty tight-lipped, Scott. Um, you know, we, um, 
we we were advised um, just previous to um, the it being made public, um, but uh, but you know well supported in in terms of our caucus and uh, and um, my colleagues. And what's the response been from the public so far? So you know, majority is positive. Like I, I think that people are seeing that this enables the government to, you know, not let differences stand in the way of, of progress and getting things done. I think another important point is that the commitments that has been made are commitments that were in our platform, right? So these are things that mm-hmm. the NDP and the Liberal can agree on, except for the one piece, which was the dental care piece. But that was something that was a little talked about among my colleagues, um, with respect to potential moving forward on that plank. It wasn't in the platform. It wasn't a commitment we've made. But it was something where I think that there was favor to... Uh, and now, of course, in this agreement, it is something that we uh, meant to move forward with. So um, it's so positive and uh, um, receiving positive responses. I mean, I think there's always going to be people that uh, will speak against it. But if you're asking me as an MP what I am getting in response, it's mostly positive. Uh, lots, obviously, and, and again, as you mentioned, this has been in, in past election campaigns and such. Pharmacare, dental care, obviously $10 a day, daycare. Uh, most Canadians would, would say, yeah, those are all great ideas. But in a post-COVID world, we've certainly seen what our illustrious healthcare system has was really all about and and healthcare workers uh, from all stripes uh, from one end to the other are are, are just wiped right out uh, because of uh, inadequate funding funding formulas we know this is all provincial but every single province is saying the same thing when healthcare started the feds paid 50% now they're paying less than 25% and now we're tacking on pharmacare or dental care or $10 a day daycare which were all there Prior to the pandemic and prior to Health Canada or healthcare's uh, really weak links being exposed, so what's to assure people that a our healthcare system is going to be finally addressed by the feds and some sort of formula is going to be figured out? And and where do all these other programs fit in if we can't get healthcare right? So I would just um, I would point out that in the agreement there is a commitment on healthcare, right? There's um, ensuring that ongoing investments will be. Um, committed to address the pressures that the healthcare system is facing, um, a commitment to work with provinces and territories to deliver uh, better health uh, outcomes for Canadians, primary care doctors and nurses, which is something that we mentioned in our platform, mental health support, aging at home, uh, better data, all those things are a part of this uh, agreement as well. And I think um, further, because in your question as well as, you know, how are you paying for all this, I think it's really important that we continue to make investments that are going to lead to economic growth, investments that make sense. Um, and so things like uh, um, affordable childcare is a perfect example of that, right? So it's a significant investment, but at the end of the day, it pays off because we know that we can get predominantly more women because that's going to benefit by this investment, but parents into the workforce, they're not going to pay off for Canadians. So, so that healthcare plank is there, and as you say, you're absolutely right, a lot of healthcare is delivered by the provinces, but we recognize that this is really important to Canadians, and so for us to, to you know, consider making that relationship even stronger and continuing to work to deliver is, is, an, important, um, is an important part of our, uh, our platform priorities moving forward.
Uh, the Prime Minister in Brussels today, we know uh, the important uh, NATO summit going on in regard to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Canada has been criticized for not uh, spending enough of its GDP on NATO, uh, not bringing it up to 2%. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, leader of the NDP, has said uh, out, uh, out loud many times that he's not in favor of increasing any military spending. With the two parties merged now, how do you balance this? Well, I think you raise a really important point here. So what this agreement does is it enables us to move forward on the things that we agree to. Having said that, it does not take any, um, it doesn't take anything away from being challenged by every party holding us to account with respect to investments that we are making. And so, you know, question period yesterday, question period today, question period tomorrow, as well as beyond question period, we are going to be called uh, to question on all of the investments that we make. The NDP were calling us to question yesterday in question period on various things. Um, secondly, what I would say in terms of defense spending, and I can say this uh, as the Minister of Procurement as well, mm -hmm. I mean, we are in the midst of purchasing 88 fighter jets. This is a commitment that we have made. It's a $19 billion price tag to it. We are moving forward on this. Uh, in terms of procurement for the Navy and uh, the, uh, the Coast Guard, you know, we are um, investing in the national shipbuilding strategy to make sure that we have the protections that are there. As of December of last year, we've invested over $21 billion in the national shipbuilding strategy. So this is about um, paving the way forward and getting obstacles out of the way so that things that we, the NDP and the Liberals agree on, we can move forward. And again, no surprises, all in our platform. The only thing that's different is the dental care piece. But we're not going to let differences stand in the way. And I think that that, you know, we have seen the polarization, the dysfunction, the obstruction, it happens. And it's, it's part of politics, regrettably, it is. Like, there is always the trying to score political points. But I can tell you, as a person that got into this, in order to make a difference and deliver for Canadians, this is what this agreement is about. This is what I really like about this agreement. You know, in my writing, I'm hearing a lot about climate change, about housing. I've always said housing affordability is the number one priority in housing. This agreement is allowing us to make those investments. So there, oh, there will be times that the NDP may not agree with us, and they are going to challenge us on those investments, but it's not going to throw us off our game. We're going to continue to stick to reality and provide for Canadians the things that we have promised, the best of our ability. Philomena Tassi, thanks so much for taking the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley hosts the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. With us now, Scott, hope you're doing well. Doing great. How are you? I'm doing fine. I want to play you a clip from uh, the current leader of the provincial liberals, uh, Stephen Del Duca, and, and really third party status. So we should be giving Andrea Horbath a bit more press than this guy. But uh, Andrea Horbath has said the same basic thing in that, you know, we've got to get this deal signed. Every other province has got a national daycare deal signed and we haven't. Why haven't we got one? And this is what Del Duca had to say. This agreement should have been in place first. Ontario should have led on this issue. And if Doug Ford actually cared about affordability, if he really cared about providing relief to Ontario's families, he would have been first in line. And today in Ontario, if he had done that, Ontario families would already be saving thousands of dollars. 
That equals bad business. And here's my example. Uh, Ontario is the biggest. It's the most powerful. It, it generates the most revenue. It is the most expensive. It is the most diverse province in the country. Why would we go first only to say, oh, look, BC got a better deal. Did you see what Quebec got or did you see what uh, Alberta got? So I remember talking to Kathleen Wynne during the height of the green energy scam and, you know, the prices were going up and I'm like, I'm questioning her and why she's doing this and why we need to be doing this before crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And she said she wanted to be first. She wanted to set the trend in the country. She wanted to be first and wanted to be to, to Ontario to take the lead, exactly like Del Duca said. And of course, we overspent. Uh, we went way in over our head. We had to end up refinancing it all and we'll be paying it for the next 30 years. And now instead of being first with the green energy file, we became a poster province of what not to do. So there is absolutely no advantage from a business standpoint as far as getting a good deal uh, to go first because we're the biggest. We should be last and get the most out of anybody. Scott, can you see any reason to be first in this discussion? You know, I'm still having, uh, I'm still wrapping my head around the the whole idea of the institutionalized daycare, and I I really believe that we would be far better off. And lots of people may disagree, but I think we'd be far better off putting the money directly into the hands of parents of children to look after their own daycare for a variety of reasons. The first one is there's going to be an awful lot of private daycare operators that may be drummed out of business if they don't fall in line with the the provincial edict or whatever but beyond that you know this is a this is a program that it sounds great and for some people it would be great there's no question that for some people it'll be great but for others who don't work nine to five who may work shifts or something else we there may not be daycare in your area you would be far better off to have money put in your hand so you could hire someone yourself to do this and and Look, I, I look at those, this whole thing, and I know there are people saying, no, come on, just get it done. We just want our $10 daycare. I'll say one other thing about this, and whether it's first or second or tenth or whatever. Just today or yesterday, uh, Frank Stronach, you know, businessman, granted businessman, mm-hmm. people will say, well, he's a businessman. So what does he know? You know, he's only in it for the bottom line. He, he was talking about the fact that Canada is adding, now this is not Ontario, but Canada, we have our own problems. Canada is adding $400 million a day to our debt. $400 million a day to our debt on the interest and with the debt that we're accruing. Ontario is also adding tons and tons of this. I think that we, rather than leaping into something first, should be looking at saying, what is the most economical way that we can do these things that can get the biggest bang for our buck? And you know what? If it turns out that this universal daycare, the way that it's being planned, is that, okay, if we can say that this will boost the economy because women can now, more women can go to work who otherwise would have had to pay it, fine, we can have that discussion. But uh, jumping in right away to be first, I, I'll, I'll agree with you on that point. Let, let's make sure that we're doing whatever it is we're doing, whether we agree or disagree. Let's make sure that it works as well as humanly possible. Why wouldn't you let the other provinces go first and then see what they get? I mean, there just makes absolutely no sense other than you can say, I'm first. And as in Kathleen Wynne's uh, situation, uh, well, there's the example of what not to do. And the other provinces followed that. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it sounds good like you're getting the money into the parent's pocket a little sooner. But if it doesn't last as long or you didn't get as good a deal as somebody else, 
what the heck's the sense? And well, we're the king and, here. And, we're the biggest yeah. province. We should be getting the best deal. And again, whatever it turns out that the best deal is, and whether that's, as I say, first or last, it doesn't matter. But here's the other thing. We know, we know, Scott, that politicians, the one thing they do not do is once a program is in place, they don't want to take a program away because as soon as you take a program away that the government has offered, those who support the program immediately say, people are going to die. And then the politician doesn't want to lose votes because they're taking... The politicians like to give things. They don't like to take things away. Yeah, and yeah. so you got to make sure whatever program it is you're putting in place, I'm in agreement with you on this, whatever program you're putting in place, it's not going to be rescinded. So make sure it's right. That's all. Make sure it's right. And whatever it is you're going to do, it's not going to leave. I don't care if the Conservatives come in next or if the People's Party comes in next or if any party comes in next. They're not taking this back once people have tasted it. What was that old song by, who was it? Was it uh, uh, A Taste of Honey's Worse Than None at All? Right? By uh, you know, yes. the Motown song? Yes. Once, once you've had it, taking it away infuriates people. No government is going, once this is in place, it's not going away. So don't make a hash of it and then be in a position where all of a sudden you're going, we can't do this anymore, but we also can't not do it, and you're stuck. I, again, to me, it's not a race. I um, There's no reward for being the first one to sign on, and much like the green energy experience with Kathleen Wynne. Uh, the rest just said, whoops, not that. Uh, Scott, as always, uh, thanks for your time, and have a great show. We will. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. 557, thanks to the two Wills and Diana and Dave for all helping out today. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. You know, I'm kind of excited about the... uh the liberals and the new Democrats teaming up because it's almost like a setup for a good sitcom. You could could have two and a half leaders. That's Jake Meek and uh, Christian Freeland and then Trudeau Boy there is the half. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.